I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. Before you hear from me this week, let's go ahead and hear from my guest first. My name is Anthony McCartan, and my craft is screenwriting. Screenwriter and producer Anthony McCartan has a very interesting streak going on lately. Three of the last five Oscars for Best Actor have gone to the stars of his celebrated biopics The Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, and Bohemian Rhapsody. His latest film is The Two Popes, an adaptation of his own play, which tells the story of Pope Benedict's 2013 resignation as head of the Catholic Church, and current Pope Francis's reluctant acceptance of the chair of St. Peter. The script is a sort of struggle of wills and ideas, Benedict representing the church's strong traditionalist roots, and Francis representing a clear and present necessity for growth and change. Much of this, as you'll soon hear, was in Anthony's bloodstream and desperate to find its way out onto the page. A lifelong Catholic, he had, like many, grown frustrated with the church and felt Pope Francis was a breath of fresh air. But in order to really capture these two men with respect and compassion, he had to go beyond taking sides. He had to understand them, to absorb views counter to his own, and to synthesize something he calls the overarching crisis in the world today, a crisis of listening. In this episode, Anthony will discuss how he simultaneously developed both the screenplay and a play around this material, and how the film allowed him to open it up. He'll talk about how he followed Plato's rules in crafting dialogue for two strongly opposing viewpoints, and what the subjects of this film share with some of those towering individuals he's written as of late. All of that and more is just ahead, so let's get into it. Anthony, this film was uh, born in St. Peter's Square. You were in Rome on your way to light a candle for a departed family member, and you stumbled across this open-air mass that uh, Pope Francis was delivering, and you just you were struck by the fact that there were two popes walking the earth. You, know, you decided you wanted to write something. How does that even begin to take shape? I ask that because sometimes I write something just to see if there's a story there. So I wondered if it was a lightning bolt or if it was just exploratory to try to find a story. It's, it's really just following your curiosity where it leads. And uh, my curiosity was sufficiently s- stirred on that particular day, just feeling the, the charisma of Francis, which was palpable in that square on that occasion, 5,000 or so people, probably only a fraction of them were Catholics, people just interested in, in him as a, as a figure. And I Googled when was the last time the Pope resigned and, you know, when the number 700 years popped up. Yeah, You know, the dramatist in you wakes up and, and goes, hello, um, this is interesting. So 1213 was the last time a Pope resigned. Read a bit further, scroll down. Celestine V. Yeah. Dante, when he writes Dante's Inferno, mentions this Pope and throws him to the lowest levels of hell, calls him the great refuser um, and a coward for having um, walked away from the papacy. And you and I and it just started to really dawn on me that how cataclysmic an event this resignation was. So I got back to London and started um, just reading and just wanting to know really. And that's often how these things are born for me: is yeah. why did it happen? And 
there were big gaps in in the explanations. Um, I never really believed um, Benedict's own explanation as to why he resigned, which was just that I'm old. Mm-hmm. If that was the case, I mean, they would all have resigned. Um, yeah. So it it I it was I smelt something fishy here and I wanted to learn. Yeah. So was it immediately like this could be a conversation between two people? This could be a tête-à-tête. Like, how does it take shape as like entertaining drama? Like, how does that begin to even click? I've always been interested in debates. Um, in the theater of ideas. I used to work in, as a playwright um, initially when I started my professional writing career. And that's often what you're dealing with. You know, you've got characters on stage with polar positions, you know, and um, the rules are ancient for these types of fights. You know, it's, it goes back to the dialogues, Plato's dialogues and things. You You have to love both characters equally. You have to equip them with arguments of e- equal weight and veracity. And and um, and then you try to find a middle ground. And the sense with this project was that it, it could be a debate between a conservative and a liberal where somehow they'd found a middle ground. And it seems to me in society at large right now that the middle would seem to have collapsed. And uh, as Yates said, the center is not held. And, um, and that it might speak to that broader conversation. The, the world started turning and then, you know, to do justice a double portrait like this, you have to do your research. It has to be as true and authentic as you can make it. And that begins with research. So I did a lot of diving into what their stated positions were, um, translated articles out of newspapers from different languages and so forth, till I had a pretty complete picture of what their stated positions and pronouncements were. Yeah. And the artifice in this particular project was then to put those two positions into conflict with each other to turn it into a dialogue yeah so although we don't know what was said behind closed doors between the two men i think i've done justice to their their known positions well that's interesting about the research because you you use german news sources to research benedict and argentinian sources to uh research francis what were some differences that you noticed in how the two countries kind of covered their hometown popes um when um benedict was elected uh I remember the leading newspaper, Die Zeit, um, their headline was a full page and it said, we are Pope. <laughs> there was a tremendous sense in Germany at that time that the election of a German pontiff somehow was a positive comment that Germany was emerging from the fog of suspicion, you know, that it could be seen as as having a claim on some moral authority again. Mm. So there was a lot that was easily available about Benedict this the theologian, this intellectual, um, a man of dogma who stood up for doctrine, who was the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, this long title, um, which was essentially a body that was going to make sure that dogma was followed, that rules were followed. Um, he was the son of a policeman, and the abeyance of rules um, has sort of governed his life. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a tremendous strength in rules yeah. and enforcing them. And, and he got the moniker of God's Rottweiler, God's enforcer, mm-hmm. um, which is fair and not fair, in that he's more than that. He's one of the world's more in, interesting intellectuals, um, but an arch-conservative. And then you've got Francis, and Francis came through, like Benedict, grew up under d- dictatorships and learned good and bad things from that. Um, 
they they learned the value of silence to speak out against uh, a tyrannical dictatorship got people killed. Um, and so he abstained from criticizing the military junta in the Argentina in the 70s. Mm-hmm. The upside of that was none of his Jesuit um, priests under his care, because he was the head of the Jesuits in Argentina, lost their lives, not one. Um, but when 30,000 people were disappeared um, and many priests were shot and children were taken from parents and so forth, there was criticism and remains criticism to this day that he didn't speak up enough yeah. and didn't do enough. Getting to the bottom of that was was trickier because there's still a lack of candor, um, even on the part of uh, Pope Francis. Um, there's You can see a YouTube clip where he's being called in to face some charges and, and under heavy questioning. And he's uh, uncomfortable in the chair. He's... He, he clearly resents having to answer questions about something so long ago where he feels he did all he could. Mm-hmm. But he's still a divisive figure in Argentina, and interestingly, he's never been back to Argentina since those days. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah. But he has turned himself into, into a fascinating figure of humility and sacrifice. My assessment is he's done this by an act of will, which makes him doubly interesting to me as a person and and as a you know someone dramatizing his life, yeah. Because if you're born humble, it's no particular achievement to stay humble. Mm-hmm. But if you're born with a normal array of vanities and and egocentricities, then um, and then you have to work at being good. Yeah, and it's a bigger achievement. And um, and he's uh, he's doing a good job. He's uh, his positions on the environment and progressive issues is is just a breath of fresh air. This started as a play. Uh, the production was this past summer, I believe, with Anton Lesser and Nicholas Woodson. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, how did seeing it performed on stage unlock ideas for how to tell the story on a on a bigger canvas? They kind of developed in parallel. I mean, the play was written first, um, and then we started to workshop it and so forth. But mm-hmm. uh, um, my agents got me out, out out around the studios touting it as a movie at the same time. So. We, we're kind of developing them both in parallel, so mm-hmm. they, they kind of both informed each other. Interesting. Um, the the stage play, by its very nature, you couldn't dramatize flashbacks into Argentina yeah. and so forth. So that had to be done done through monologues um, and confessions and so forth. Um, but with the movie, I mean, we had this fantastic opportunity with a good budget from Netflix to to reinvent the past and make it bring it to life again and mm-hmm. so um hence the, the the whole elaborate restagings of uh Francis's past yeah um and the opportunity to rebuild the Sistine Chapel and, and work on that scale yeah. so we really were able to bring the full pageantry of the church um alive in the movie which we perforce could only suggest in the in the play yeah all right. So speaking of, of, you know, building the Sistine Chapel, I want to get into the production side of it mm. and bringing in someone like Fernando Marias to, to tell this story. Mm. It's fascinating to me because he's got such a definitive voice, but it's not one you might immediately expect for this material, I guess. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, on bringing him in and, and what he brought to the material and why he was ultimately just a perfect choice for this. Well, he, I think he's one of the great humanist filmmakers. Um, he loves people, he loves faces. And you, you look at the way the camera lingers on faces of ordinary people and um, he has a great compassion. 
in in the way he shoots this thing. He's also very uh, uh, interested in simplicity um, and intimacy mm. and getting rid of a lot of the paraphernalia. I, I'd come off making a movie, Darkest Hour, where um, it was a different type of uh, approach aesthetically. Um, it was very painstaking and it was very painterly. Um, and coming on to Fernando's set with the great Cesar as a DP, they, they they said, we're not going to work in light and dark. We're going to work in colors. So when we're going to light, just light this thing in a general sense. And then we're not tweaking and we're going to move and we're going to do it handheld and we're going to get it naturalistic. And and so it, it, it lent a great sort of authenticity to it, um, a, a real a real level of reality and spontaneity to it all that allowed him to then jump between archival footage um, and the stuff he was shooting that um, almost seamlessly. And if you watch the movie, you're almost, it all seems a similar texture. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's so many different formats of film and, um, you know, footage shot in the 1970s on, on video, which is up against 35 millimeter stuff and then video. And so it's a sort of very, it's an amalgam of all these different techniques. You've got Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins taking on the roles now. Uh, brilliant pairing, uh, sort of an unexpected pairing. And I, I spoke to Fernando a while back and, and he was talking about how regarding the photography plan and things like that, that the idea was to do what would be unexpected. And I'm just mm. curious if that's something you shared with this project, considering it's waiting for Godot in some sense, you know, yeah. <laughs> two individuals <laughs> talking. Yeah. Uh, you want to, you want to kind of like break out of that and, and be unexpected. So I'm just curious if that's something you shared. I'm not sure Fernando even knows this, but when Jonathan, uh, and Dan, two of the producers and I went into Netflix and pitched this, we took two photographs with us, one of Anthony Hopkins and one of Jonathan, Jonathan Price. <laughs> and we hadn't asked them their permission to, to take the pictures in and they hadn't consented to do the movie and didn't even know about the movie at that point. We pitched the movie and at the end, Netflix said, so do you have these guys? And we said, well, you know, not exactly, but, you know, we're, we're going to go to them. And Fernando's worked with Tony Hopkins before and Jonathan Price, as it turns out, is a huge fan of uh, Fernando's work. And we got them and that almost never happens. Whether they're unexpected casting decisions, I'm not sure. I know when, I'm sure you'll talk to Jonathan, but when Francis was elected Pope, that the internet was full of pictures of Jonathan yeah. Price, right? Beside. He looks like him. I think it's just the pairing. Like yeah. seeing these two guys together is not not something I would have expected to see in a movie, and it works out so beautifully. You know? Yeah. The film opens up for you a bit uh, when you're able to do this flashback structure with uh, Bergoglio in Argentina, and you know he's having his awakening, serving with the Jesuits, and everything, getting tangled up in the dirty war, as we were speaking to. You said you weren't able to do flashbacks in the play, but were you? How were you able to kind of like deal with that element of his past in the play? And and obviously with the film, you're able to open up and and show that. But how mm. were you able to indicate it in the play? Well, in the play, uh, an original working title had been um, the Confession, mm -hmm. and uh, it was my initial design to have this about two men who gain each other's trust to the point where they start to confess their sins and yeah. their humanity and their flaws. And through an understanding and a recognition of each other's flaws, then you can move forward mm -hmm. um, into new possibilities. Uh, so I had contained the flashbacks in the play in the forms of a confession. So it was an extended monologue. 
So a lot of the research that went into that monologue, um, the challenge was then to make that real mm. and to to go down to the barrios in, uh, in Argentina and show the trucks and the yunta and the conversations, you know, between the priests that were working in the slums. And, um, and here, this is where Fernando, you know, availed and did some of his best works. You know, I think it's in City of God and, um, it feels like your the camera is, is journalistic, um, yeah. and and it's horrifying. It's like the nightly news is you don't want to see it. Uh, pay tribute to Fernando and 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 the whole team, the Argentinian crew, creating that that veracity, yeah, that, that urgency that you feel in those sequences, which are truly horrific, you know. So the the scene, for example, where they drug one of the women who's a friend of Bergoglio. And the camera pulls back and you realize they're in the back of an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. and the doors are open and then they roll these drug bodies out of the back and dump yeah. them and the bodies fall down, down, down towards the sea. That's described in the play, mm-hmm. but it cannot have the power that it does in the movie. Yeah. Something that's so beautiful about the the story to me is that Bergoglio obviously has these sins in his past and he's attained a certain level of grace and Mm. and a sense of feeling forgiven. And and that is clearly what Benedict covets is he's he's searching out the same kind of grace in in, in his perceived misdeeds and and peace. And I mean, was that something that was just in your head the whole time? Yeah, it was. It was was a sense of a man who was um, in a a kind of spiritual agony. Yeah. And that he he was seeking a reconnection to God. I mean, I don't know, in your own personal life, but we all need a connection with something, whether it's mm. family, whether it's with an ideology, a loved one, something on the spiritual realm. And we've all had moments, which St. John of the Cross once described as dark nights of the soul, yeah, where that connection is severed and you feel alone and you feel lost and disconnected. And um, it is in search of reconnection um, that that's the sort of motive that's driving Benedict through this, yeah. through, the, through this story. And he's just subtly envious of this man from Argentina who seems so effortlessly mm. connected. Yeah. And it, it leaks its way into the dialogues. Uh, when we, how was it for you? How, how do you maintain your connection? Mm. Do you ever lose faith? Have you, have you ever lost your faith? You finally learn what he's getting at. Yeah, he seems almost accusatory at first. But yeah, then you, you understand that he's in need, he's yeah. in pain, and he's searching as well, and he's trying to find that that place of peace. And he he gets there. I yeah. don't think it's a spoiler to say that that he gets there. And I think something, some of these elements start to explain why you know the film is winning all these audience awards and things. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I hope people would love the movie, but. I wouldn't have said going in that it was going to be the type of film that wins audience awards. Traditionally, it isn't you yeah. know, a theological debate between two old men. You know, yeah, it, it's usually a car chase or two. You know, yeah. <laughs> could have got one of those in there. Yeah, just shout out to Cesar who who received the Silver Frog. Yeah, at Camry Maj, which I yeah. thought was fantastic. Yeah, it, means it shows the sophistication of the judges too, because it's yeah. not a pristine, yeah, manicured highly curated aesthetic thing yeah. it, it is it is trying to capture the chaos of life and and it's you know mixed media qualities and visual storytelling yeah this idea of the epic and the intimate 
Hmm. Something you said you've kind of chased with your work. Uh, how did that translate to this project? Well, you've got a faith whose whose light has been burning for two thousand years. One point four billion Catholics followers. So that's epic. Yeah. And the fate of this institution then plays out in an intimate tete-a-tete between two men, even more than anything I've done. Probably this this combines those two things. Mm-hmm. It's just something that where I love the that contrast. That, you know the grain of sand and uh, you know and the universe you know the stakes are higher that what was transacted between these two very real human beings has universal implications in my personal life i can have an argument and resolve it people you know don't die as a result there aren't world wars as a result but it's fascinating when you show the implications of the intimate having global repercussions i studied a course when i was at university called uh, political psychology, and it looked at history as being really about the psychological flaws of individuals mm. and how some childhood trauma can explain the First World War. You know what I mean? That, that world leaders are, are susceptible and their, their judgments are susceptible to very intimate human trauma or experiences that, that inform their decision-making yeah. in ways that we all pay the price. Um, so that's sort of become a bit of a recurrent theme in my work. Seems timely too. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, just the post-production situation here. Uh, mm. you know, speaking earlier of the flashbacks, a lot of that got trimmed as I understand. And I'm just curious if there was any elements of that, that you were sort of sad to lose. No, it's, um, um we had expanded the, the universe of those flashbacks and made it more Francis centric. But as soon as we started previewing the film, audiences didn't want to leave Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. And they wanted to get back to them as quickly as possible and get back to that conversation. Um, so having done all the work to expand that that territory, we then cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. Yeah. Um, just to its to its raw bones, actually. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the people resented being taken away from two people they'd kind of fallen in love with. Yeah. So it was interesting and as well done as the flashbacks were. It was always a challenge to, to I- I- integrate them into yeah. something. Well, there's probably multiple stories you could tell here. I mean, I talked to Fernando about this and he said there was probably two or three versions of this movie yeah. and all of them were good. Yeah. You know, since this film is a more expansive rendering of what you did on the stage, do you think you'd have it in you to do an even more expansive rendering of, of these two guys or this situation? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of things like how Peter Morgan can't leave the, the Royals alone, mm. you know, like maybe you and the Popes. Just, <laughs> what do you think? Is this something you'd want to revisit? Well, you never, never rule anything out, but I know I, I've kind of exhausted my curiosity with yeah. this particular subject. I'd have to be, have another kind of epiphany again about something that I thought was, was important to it, to address here. Mm. I don't have a rear view mirror. I don't, mm. I tend not to want to rehash. And then, you know, regarding some of these biopics you've written lately, uh, these towering individuals, Stephen Hawking, Winston Churchill, Freddie Mercury, and now Bergoglio and, and, and Benedict, uh, what do you think has drawn you, perhaps subconsciously, to these specific individuals? Uh, what qualities do you think they share? I think they all found themselves in a, in a moment in, in their lives when they could have gone one way and they went the other. We, I think we all find this in our lives where there are heroic choices with, with sacrifices that are attendant to those choices. Oftentimes, we, we take the easy road. The difficult path often is a constant in, in great lives, and there are costs, and they, they all pay them, and whether it's Freddie Mercury or Churchill or 
Stephen Hawking. You give up things to make the most of your of your gifts. Yeah. Um, but you know that we're all born with a life mission, and we're challenged to take up that mission. Sometimes yeah. it's way easier to just uh, you know to go. You know what? Not today. Yeah. Well, these are people who who, who accepted it. Absolutely. We're going to slow things down here a little bit. We'll slow things down. We're going to have some rapid fire questions for you. So just whatever comes to you on these. First of all, speaking of biopics, what's one piece of advice you would give to anyone writing a biopic? You can make the mistake of inventing too much with a biopic. You can also make the mistake of inventing too little. So you're just going to leave people in the middle of the road there. (laughs) (laughs) You said these were quick fire questions. (laughs) You're right. You're right. You're right. Who would be the star of your biopic? Of my biopic? Yeah. Uh, who would play me? Yeah. Uh, Pope Francis. <laughs> Great answer. I actually have this quote hanging above my desk. I'm curious if you agree or disagree with it. E.B. White, a writer who waits for ideal conditions under which to work, will die without putting a word to paper. Sounds about right to me. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, finally, what's the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Oh, gee, it would either be Lawrence of Arabia or... Planet of the Apes. Interesting. Tell me about those two. Lawrence of Arabia, I remember it played at the State Cinema in New Plymouth, New Zealand. Um, and uh, I went along and they used to do these things called spiders, which was like a scoop of ice cream. And then they pour Fanta on top of it and it turned into this frothy mess. <laughs> I loved them. And I'd sit there and the screen started to open because they had curtains in those days. And then they'd play God Save the Queen, which in the Commonwealth countries of Britain, they you always have to stand up and you'd God save our <laughs> great. Unbelievable, but we used to. And then the screen would start to open and it got wider and wider and wider. It was impossible how wide the screen finally was. This Panavision glorious color thing and then this music score came up in the great deserts of Arabia, came on screen. I was in thrall. Um, to movie making since, and it remains my favorite movie. Oh yeah, but similarly, I was uh, at around the same time. Planet of the Apes, the first version, Charlton Heston was playing, and it was an R thirteen, and I was eleven, <laughs> and it broke my heart. I used to line up, try day after day to get into this screening and get out of here, kid. You know, <laughs> um, and eventually I bluffed my way in and uh, got to see Planet of the Apes, and uh, I love a good popcorn movie yeah um but i also love the camel opera type movie which lawrence surely is yeah no doubt Mm. well uh thank you again for talking to me today this movie is amazing uh it's it's i keep calling it sublime that's sort of the word i've settled on for the two popes no it's just sublime to watch these two guys talk and 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 to see these ideas that were clearly a, a conversation you were having with yourself as well it's it's just a great piece of work so thank you again for talking thank you buddy So, again, there really is something sublime about seeing these ideas play out on the screen in the marketplace today. And it's a real challenge, as we discussed, to make this material sing. To engage the audience for two solid hours with talk of religion and nary an explosion in sight. Great actors help tremendously, of course, and filmmaking that grabs you is a must. But none of that would really matter if Anthony hadn't managed to craft such an exquisite engine on the page. So check out The Two Popes as soon as you can if you haven't already. It's available to stream on Netflix right now.
Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 